Mark chapter 14, verses 12 through 21 this morning. Mark chapter 14, verses 12 through 21. How many of you, I wonder, have ever been on a roller coaster before? Yeah? One of the, I'm, talking, I'm not talking like the, the newer ones where it's all smooth and it's kind of a nice gliding ride. I'm talking about your old school rickety wooden roller coaster, right? Those are always my favorite. And one of the things I, I remember about them, I have to, I'm going to back up here a second. You know how they have like, they used to have the little bar that comes across and you feel like you're going to fly out? I think that that's part of the fun versus the apparatus now. It comes in and it like bolts you to the seat so you know you're not going anywhere. I think it takes away from the thrill. But, but anyhow, one of my favorite parts about the beginning of a wooden roller coaster is the big hill at the beginning, and you can hear the, just the chain pulling you to the top. Click, 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 click. And then right before you get ready to go over the hill, there's that pause where everybody kind of takes their deep breath. <gasps> and then you know what happens after that. The screaming starts, the hands go up, and it's over before you know it. Mark's gospel actually kind of works like that, but in reverse. So we've been very rapidly moving through the gospel. We've had snapshots of Jesus' life arranged for us in a type of mosaic so that we're able to view his ministry through the lens of his disciples, through their eyes. And now that we get into chapter 14, what happens is, is Mark hits the brakes a little bit. He slows us way, way down. So if you can think about how a roller coaster at the very front end has that very slow climb, that's kind of how the gospel's finishing up here. His book is finishing up here. It's very slow. He's, he's not given us details before, but now he's going to provide us with all kinds of details. Jesus is heading towards the hour for which he came. Soon he will be dead. And Mark doesn't want us to miss a step. Each one leads to Calvary's hill. Uh, by way of context, a little bit last week, we looked at Judas's betrayal. We were introduced to it once more. I mean, we knew about it because all the way back in chapter 3, he was introduced to us as Judas, the one who would betray Jesus, right? So the narrator told us, but the disciples, everybody else, they don't know that Judas is about to betray Jesus. And once more, Mark told us last week that there's this plot going on in the background, and he contrasted the devotion of Mary. She poured out all of that nard, we said it was a perfume, onto the head of Jesus and prepared him for burial. It was a, uh, an extravagant act of worship, an act of extravagant devotion. And we contrasted her devotion to Jesus with Judas's fake discipleship. He was in the background proving that his true allegiance was to money and to greed rather than to Christ. And so now his villainy has been brought front and center once more. And today what we're going to learn is that despite Judas's evil intent, Jesus is in charge. Jesus is in charge. That's the main idea I want you to get a hold of this morning. And so, uh, and by way of trying to help you remember that, uh, in case you get bored during my sermon or you're thinking about this throughout the week, trying to let these verses soak into your bones as you remember them in your quiet time and read ahead for next week, uh, I want to help you remember them by way of bringing up an old theme song. Any of you remember Charles in Charge, Right? That song is Charles in charge of our days and our nights. 
Charles in charge of our wrongs and our rights. And I sing, I want Charles in charge of me. Not a good singer, right? But what you do is you substitute Jesus' name in there for Charles, and you can just have it going all day, little theme song. Jesus in charge of our days and our nights. Jesus in charge of our wrongs and our rights. And I sing, I want Jesus in charge of me. That's the point of this pericope, this section of Scripture, is that Jesus is in charge. And part of my goal this morning is to exhort you to choose wisely whom you will serve, to choose wisely and put Jesus in charge of your life instead of yourself. Outline is going to go like this this morning. Past present and future. Past, we're going to talk about where the Passover came from. Present, we're going to talk about preparations for the Passover. And future, we're going to talk about the prediction that the Passover feast has always made and how it's about to come to fulfillment. So past, present, and future is how we're going to walk through the text. Let's pray and then we'll get into verse 12. Lord Jesus, you've told us that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from your mouth. Father, help us to come hungry and thirsty this morning and to be fed well. Don't let us leave here the same, but conform us more to your image. Crack open our angry hearts and pour in yourself. Overwhelm us once more with your spirit. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's look at verse 12. And on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, Where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? Now, if you did your homework last week, you read Exodus 12, and so you get a gold star. You know who you are if you did your homework. Gold star, uh, great job there. But for the rest of you who failed on this assignment, tisk tisk. Uh, but we're going we're gonna to remember what, what happened in Exodus 12, and I'm going to quote Tim Keller at length to help us uh, get our minds around that. But what I want you to keep in mind as we do this is that Passover in Judaism, it, it's a really big deal. This is what Keller writes. For the ancient Jews and Jews today, Passover was an annual meal that commemorated a defining moment in the history of Israel. More than a millennium before the time of Jesus, the Israelites had been enslaved to Egypt's Pharaoh, trapped in miserable bondage. After sending many plagues to Egypt to loosen Pharaoh's oppressive grip on Israel, one night, God sent the final plague. He unsheathed the sword of divine justice. And this justice would fall on everyone. It could not pass over the Jews simply because they were Jews. In every home in Egypt, of Jews and Egyptians alike, someone would die under the wrath of justice. The only way for your family to escape was to put your faith in God's sacrificial provision. Namely, you had to slay a lamb and put the blood on the doors of your home or the home in which you're eating the Passover as a sign of your faith in God. In every home that night, there would either be a dead child or a dead lamb. When justice came down, either it fell on your family 
or you took shelter under the substitute, under the blood of the Lamb. If you did accept this shelter, then death passed over you and you were saved. That's why it's called Passover. You were saved only on the basis of faith in a substitutionary sacrifice. This is how God delivered the Israelites and led them into freedom, into the promised land. And so every year, the Passover meal commemorated this deliverance, this exodus, which had been the most important moment in the life of Israel as a nation and as a people. This meal was kept in obedience to God's commandment in Deuteronomy, and it was kept as a family, and they would gather around, and typically a young boy would ask prescribed questions to whoever was hosting the meal, and the host would answer those questions in a way that described Israel's movement from out of Egypt and into the promised land. It was a way of remembering the wonder-working God. It was a way of remembering what God had done to deliver his people And so for hundreds of years, the people of God had slain lambs in remembrance of the lambs that were slain in the place of their forefathers. For hundreds of years, the people of God ate the Passover to remember what God had done and in hope of what God would do. And so the disciples are concerned here about where they're going to eat this feast. As a result of Deuteronomy says, you need to eat the feast in the place that my presence dwells, which at this point in history is in Jerusalem. And so they know they're outside of Jerusalem's walls at this point on the Mount of Olives. They know they've got to go into Jerusalem to eat this Passover in obedience to the command of God. They're concerned about how they're going to remember this feast. And so they ask Jesus that question, hey man, where are we supposed to set up? And this is what Jesus responds. And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. And wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, The teacher says, Where is my guest room, where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished and ready. There, prepare for us. And the disciples set out, They went into the city and found it just as he had told them. And there they prepared the Passover. And when it was evening, he came with the twelve. Just as he did prior to his anticlimactic entry into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey that was borrowed, he sends two disciples into the city to find a place to prepare the Passover meal. Jesus has arranged everything. He's in control. He's in charge. We might be tempted to ask the question right away, how did Jesus arrange things? Some think it's because he, uh, in his divine omniscience, he makes use of his divine power and, and just arranges things that way. Others think by human means, he just, you know, simply had made preparations beforehand, shot his buddy a text message, let him know they would be coming to eat the Passover there. I'm not, not sure which it is, but the point is not that how Jesus prepared these things, but that he did prepare these things. The point is that Jesus is in charge. I do think that the secrecy around this whole ordeal is quite interesting, Right? 
Uh, some have uh, given, said that it's like that because of Judas, right? Jesus knows that Judas is going to betray him. We see that Judas has sold him out and that he doesn't want Judas to know where they're going to be eating this meal because it's not time for him to be handed over yet. There's still part of his ministry that needs fulfilled. He's going to eat the Passover with his disciples. I mean, I, I don't know. Either way, this dinner is at an undisclosed location. And so it just kind of reminds me of like the Bourne movies or 24 or something. Like you get into the car and there's keys under the, um, what's that called, the thing that you flip down? Hang on, there's, there's keys under the visor, there it is. And you're just going to drive this car to a certain location and there'll be an envelope there and then you, you follow the map inside the envelope to get where you're going. These guys are supposed to go into the city and find a guy carrying a jar. I mean, Jerusalem would have been so full at this point, that would have bordered on ridiculous we're just supposed to go into this metropolis and find a guy carrying a jar of water? Not, it's not as ridiculous as you think, though, because a man carrying a jar of water would have actually been quite out of place. Typically, carrying water, pitchers of water, would have been reserved for women and children. Not that guys didn't do it sometimes, as in this case. So, so the guy would have stuck out a little bit, despite the fact that Jerusalem is kind of throbbing with people at this point. Regardless of the circumstances, the disciples listen to Jesus. They go into the city. They find this man with the jar. They follow him, and they find things just as Jesus said they would. Jesus, he's planned all these things. I'm going to beat that drum all morning this morning, if you didn't recognize already. He is in charge of these events. He's not a tragic hero caught in events beyond his control. He's in charge. See, Judas and others, they may act against Jesus, but they never act upon Jesus. The treachery of Judas and the horror of the cross do not catch Jesus off guard. He's not surprised by his suffering, but submissive to the Father's plan for it. He knew what was coming and he embraced it for the joy set before him our salvation. Jesus is in charge, and I think this fact should give us great encouragement. It should encourage you to know that God is in control of all things. Especially, it should be a great encouragement to you when things in life don't go according to plan and when suffering comes. Because if you're in Christ, it means that everything that happens to you happens for you. It happens for your good and for God's glory. So that you can know not even a hair of your head falls out apart from the will of God. And that terrible thing that's happened, that evil thing that happens to you, yes, it's evil, it's not good, it's hard. But you can know that God is going to overrule that evil. He's going to overrule that suffering and utilize it to flourish you. To deepen your affection for him. To prepare you for who he's making you. God is weaving together all of your life's circumstances to prepare you for eternity. And that's what the Christian life is. It's a continual becoming and practice what God's declared us to be in truth, which is like his son. God is using your circumstances right now to make you in practice what he's declared you to be. He's declared you to be beautiful. He's declared you to be Christ-like. Practically, we still sin. And he uses our circumstances to make us more and more likely, more and more holy. He's making us beautiful by his grace. This, this doesn't trivialize our sufferings. 
but it helps us to understand them and to have an unshakable joy in the midst of them. That's why Paul writes in Philippians 4.13, I can face all things through Christ who strengthens me. I can go into any circumstance, whether I have a ton of stuff or very little stuff. I can be beaten and stoned and thrown out of cities. I can be shipwrecked. Or I can sit on plush couches. Either way, my joy is the same because my God is unshakable and He is in control. And He works for my good. So I can trust Him when times get hard. God overrules even the most evil actions, even the most evil events, and He uses them for our good. I think this should help us to obey Paul's command in 1 Thessalonians 5 when he writes, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will in Christ Jesus for you. Have you ever wondered what God's will is for you? It's that you would trust him in each and every circumstance. And when you do that, when your joy is rooted in Christ, you'll be like a tree that's well planted next to the river because you've been meditating on his laws. You've been meditating on his character. And so when the winds come and the seasons of change start blowing through, you are unmoved and unshaken because you're firmly rooted in the God who is immovable. You can trust him. He's in charge. And he has arranged the events of your life just as he arranged a place for the disciples to eat the Passover. You can trust him to do good. Look at verse 17. And when it was evening, he came with the twelve. Did you catch that? He came with the twelve. Judas is there. Can you imagine having the person that is going to hand you over to death being at what you know will be your last supper? Can you imagine that this person that hands you over to death and is eating your last meal with you also was one of your closest friends? That's what Jesus is doing here. Jesus knows Judas has sold him out. Yet he sits Judas at his table. More. He not only eats with Judas, he loves Judas. And it's shocking what he does in John 13, uh, 3 through 5, John's account of these events. It's during the meal. This is what Jesus does. Verse 3 Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. He poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Jesus washes the feet of his betrayer. Jesus continues to serve Judas despite his betrayal. There's still time for Judas to repent. Jesus is appealing to him to repent through this act of loving service. He's also going to give him an opportunity to come clean here in a minute, and then he's going to give him a warning. 
his appeal will be to no avail. It's important to remember again, I want to remind you again that we know Judas is the betrayer, but the disciples do not know that at this point. They're eating a meal during the Passover, and in quite good spirits, I would guess. This is usually a very celebratory feast, and so if you can put yourself in their shoes for a minute, remember they think this is the conquering Messiah King that's to come. They're thinking, we're about to overthrow Rome. We're eating the Passover feast. We're celebrating God's deliverance of us from the Egyptians. And we're eating it with the Messiah in Jerusalem, which is full of who? Thousands of Jews. So if you can remember that messianic expectation, it probably is quite electric. They can feel that something great is just over the horizon. Something monumental is about to happen. And then Jesus zaps the energy out of the room in verse 18. And as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. Things are going great, they're celebrating, and once again Jesus reigns on the proverbial parade. One of you will betray me. Why does, he, why does he tell him this? Why does he bring this up? Because of his compassion for Judas. He's washed his feet. He's loved him, reminding Judas that I love you. I have come to serve you. And here he's giving Judas an opportunity to come clean. He lets Judas know that he knows without outing him. One of you is about to betray me. Guess what, Judas? I know what it is you've done. It's not too late. You can come clean. We can reconcile. This has an effect on everyone in the room, too, which would have been more than just the disciples, right? It's a family affair. There likely were women and children in the room also. And so it causes all those in the room to participate in some self-examination. Verse 19 they began to be sorrowful and to say to him one after another, is it I? I think this points us to an important fact. Just being with Jesus, it doesn't mean anything. Proximity to Jesus doesn't mean that we have taken hold of the promises of Jesus. Friends, just being here does not mean anything. It doesn't mean you're in the kingdom of God or that you know Jesus. It's quite possible to live your whole life coming to church. It's quite possible to be a really good person and to not know the God of the universe. It's it's a tragedy and it's true that many listen to preaching their whole lives and never grasp the nature of grace. They never understand forgiveness. They never are arrested by the gospel. Never had it take hold of them. Friends, examine yourselves to see if you are in the faith or not. Don't make the deadly mistake of presuming that because you come to church and do religious activities that you can be Jesus' friend while you are worshiping at the altar of another, while you're ultimately serving yourself. Don't fool yourself. Is it I, they ask? 
Again, there are more people in the room than just Jesus. So everybody's suspect at this point. And then, then Jesus narrows the possibilities down in verse, 12, verse 20 as everybody's, is it I, is it I? It, let me narrow it down for y'all. He said to them, it is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. James Edwards writes in his commentary, the likely suspects, the other people in the room, in other words, are dismissed. And all the intimate companions, they whose very hands have been in Jesus' bowl, are suspect. There may have only been one traitor in a formal sense, but by dawn, all the disciples will betray Jesus. All will leave him. All will fail the Messiah. None are worthy of him. Jesus dies for the unworthy. He dies for the outcast, for the downtrodden, for the least and the last. He dies for all those who will be poor in spirit and cry out as blind Bartimaeus, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus died for traitors. He died for disciples that deserted him. He died for you and me. Every one of us has attempted to de-God God and enthrone ourselves. We've, we've all tried and are guilty of trying to live life according to how we want, doing things our way, rather than doing it according to God's way. We've gone after what we wanted instead of what we were made for. Namely, the worship of God. We've exchanged the worship of God for the worship of other things, career, wealth, social status, you name it. We've all sold Jesus out by way of our sin. And so the right answer to this question, is it I? Requires the answer, yes, it is you. But this is where the gospel shines brightest against the backdrop of our sins. Instead of rightly killing us for our sin, Jesus gives himself over to the death our sin deserves. Indeed, he becomes a curse for us. He that knew no sin became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. cross is for the unworthy, for all those who will confess Jesus as Lord and repent of their sins. That's the only difference between Judas and the other twelve. They repent. He doesn't. It's the only difference between those that are saved and know God and those that don't. Is they repent. First John tells us, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Those who seek forgiveness, find it. Judas will not seek forgiveness. He does not confess his sin and come running and weeping into the caring arms of Christ. No, 
He is not swayed by the washing of his feet or Jesus' compassion for him. I mean, do you realize Jesus could have just killed Judas? Like when he found out that Judas was the betrayer, when he knows instead of giving him this opportunity to come clean before everybody, I know one of you will betray me. All right, Judas, come clean. He could have just said, it's Judas, let's off him. Done. Let's just jump him, we'll rough him up. Compassionate. He lets him have this opportunity to repent. But Judas still fails to come forward. He still fails to turn from his sin. Friends, if you have sin in your life that is hidden, A, it will not remain hidden forever, and B, it's so important that you come clean. Repent of your sin. That's the whole Christian life is repentance, confession, and forgiveness. It's reconciliation. The only thing worse than your hidden sin finding you out is that it would remain hidden and be allowed to grow and fester and to rule over you as Judas' sin, his desire for money, ruled over him. He still fails to come forward and repent. Jesus makes one final appeal. Verse 21. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for him if he had not been born. Judas has been unmoved by Jesus' service. He's rejected the opportunity to repent, and he will ignore this warning. Even now, no one knows it's Judas. Jesus is making one final appeal. Judas, don't do this! There's still time. Judas, this isn't who you are. We're friends. Repent. Come to me, Judas. It's not too late. Give up this wicked plan. Non-Christian, there are only so many appeals, so many warnings. So many opportunities to respond to the grace of God and the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. I implore you, take them. Come to Jesus. Do what Judas would not. Turn from your sin. Hell is an inconceivably terrible reality. Friends, death is not the end of life. If it were, Jesus' warning here would have no meaning. His words would have no weight. Death is the end. Evil wins. Judas gets away with his treachery. He escapes by way of suicide. He escapes the justice of God. Not true. Hell is a reality. And Jesus' words are dense and they are heavy. And they ought weigh heavy on you. Turn from your sin. Stop aiming to play God and start aiming to please Him. Choose life instead of death. Choose Christ, my friend. These these warnings, this opportunity, it won't last forever. Judas does not heed Jesus' words, for he has set his heart on betrayal. 
They had been friends. They had spent days and nights together, shared meals and laughs, tears and thrills. No longer Judas has hardened his heart and invited in Satan and evil rather than Christ. John 13, 23-30 tells us, One of the disciples, that's John, whom Jesus loved was reclining at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So John, that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, It is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, What you are going to do, do quickly. Now no one at the table knew why he said this to him. Some thought that because Judas was the money was responsible for the money bag, Jesus was telling him, Buy what we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, Judas immediately went out, and it was night. Judgment is coming. Judas resolved to betray Jesus and is guilty. Verse 21, for the Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born holds up both divine sovereignty and human responsibility, and it does so in tension. Scripture affirms both as true, and this is the type of puzzle that drives philosophers and people to seek, that seek to understand each and every little detail about life. It drives them crazy because they can't seem to come up with an answer. How is it that both can be true? How can God be in control of all things and yet we're still responsible agents that make decisions that matter? How does that work? We've come across this a few times, right? We've phrased the question before, which is true? And we answered, yes, they're both true. But how, how are they both true? I don't know. It's a mystery. One of the parts of our faith that I think sometimes gets lost is that there is mystery. The gospel is the great mystery of the cosmos. Paul calls it that over and over again. If you look it up in the dictionary, one of the first definitions you'll come across is that a mystery is a religious belief based on divine revelation, especially one regarded as beyond human understanding. Mystery is a part of the Christian faith. As Alistair Begg put it, if there is no mystery, there is no faith. Church, the unknowability of God is part of His glory. Yes, He's communicated Himself to us. We know a lot about Him. But we don't know everything. Not even close. Yes, utilize reason and wisdom as far as they will take. You understand the Word of God. Use all of your mental capacities to try and wrap your mind around this good news and the character of God. But don't be so foolish as to presume to comprehend the incomprehensible. Know when to stop pontificating and to simply trust in the revelation of God. Judas here is not pre-programmed to betray Jesus. He's not a robot. If he were, then he would be exonerated from any guilt. He made the choice to betray Jesus and he is guilty. 
Edwards comments, Jesus goes in accordance with God's predetermined will, but the betrayer is not thereby exonerated of guilt. Neither Jesus nor Judas is an instrument of blind fate or a pawn of divine strategy. Divine providence neither cancels human freedom nor relieves responsibility for moral choices. Friends, God overruling evil acts does not make them good. Right? If you remember back in Genesis, Joseph's brothers sell him into slavery. He ends up uh, in Egypt as one of the high officials in Pharaoh's court, and he ends up preventing uh, famine across the land. He helps save his people. His brothers come to him, and and they apologize. They're repenting, and and Joseph says to him, Brothers, you meant the act for evil, but God meant it for good. Just because God overrules an evil act, he redeems it, and uses it to bring himself glory, doesn't make the evil act a good act. Doesn't make it any less evil. An evil act is an evil act. And those who do evil are held responsible. Judas ignores the warning of God and he sins, chooses sin, and he brings about what is written of the Messiah. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of Him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. Jesus once again combines images from Daniel's conquering Son of Man and the suffering servant of Isaiah. He isn't the judgment bringing Messiah that they had expected. No, He's the judgment bearing Messiah that the world needed. He is the Son of Man who will rule over all creation and rain justice down. But He's also the suffering servant. One who suffers for the good of His people. At every Passover feast, since Jesus was very young, He was confronted with His destiny. He knew what was written of Him. And at this Passover, Jesus saw his future brightly in the slaughtered lamb upon the table. At this Passover, John the Baptist's proclamation, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world would find its fulfillment. Jesus has washed the feet of his betrayer. He's given him an opportunity to repent. He's warned him about the cost of his sin. Yet Judas would not relent. Jesus knows the very hour is upon him. He can feel death breathing on his neck. Yet he does not flee. He remains poised. He is in control. And he will go as it is written. For hundreds of years, the people of God had slain lambs in remembrance of the lands that were slain in the place of their forefathers. For hundreds of years, the people of God had wondered why the sacrifice of a lamb would exempt them from justice. For hundreds of years, the people of God ate the Passover to remember what God had done and in hope of what God would do. This year, God would reveal himself as the true Passover lamb to which all the others had pointed. Indeed. 
He would reveal himself as the point of the entire sacrificial system. The Son of Man goes as it is written of him. He was betrayed by a friend, deserted by his brothers, led as a sheep to slaughter. He was beaten, spit upon, nailed to a tree, and suspended in the air to die. He died on the cross as your substitute. His blood stains the doorposts of the kingdom of heaven. It grants entry to all those who will take shelter beneath it. His blood signifies and protects those that are united to Him by faith. The people of God are not exempt from justice but have already endured it by way of their union with Christ. In Christ, the Christian has been crucified, dead, buried, and raised from the grave. They've been seated at the right hand of God. Friend, Jesus lived the life you should have lived, died the death you should have died, rose from the grave to prove His person and His power so that by faith in Him, verse 21 doesn't have to be true, to you, true of you. Woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. We have all betrayed Him by our sin. Woe to that man. Woe to you. Woe to me. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. The cross, the blood of Christ is all that saves us. It's all that shelters us. Jesus came as it is written died for the sins of whosoever shall believeth in him as it is written, rose from the dead as it is written, sat down at God's right hand as it is written, and he will return as it is written. Jesus in charge of our days and our nights. Jesus in charge of our wrongs and our rights, and I sing, I want Jesus in charge of me. He overrules evil and he works all things together for the good of those who love him. Even the greatest wicked evil act that was ever done, even the cross, which was supposed to be evil's triumph, has become a symbol of redemption and deliverance. The cross, which was supposed to symbolize no hope, the end of hope, and death, has come to symbolize life and hope. God overrules evil. He is in control. Jesus is in charge. Choose wisely, friends. Put Him in charge of you. Let's pray together. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your sovereignty, for your control of each and everything. We also thank you for our responsibility, the fact that we're not robots and that we make decisions that matter. We thank you for this great mystery, the great mystery of the world, why you would create us when you were perfectly satisfied in and of yourself. We thank you that not only did you create us, but that when we sinned and failed, you saw fit to come and die for our sins and reconcile us to yourself and to one another, to call us your people. Father, we thank you that you've glorified yourself. Thank you that you are so good. 
Father, help us to remember that we are saved by grace alone. Help us to remember the necessity of sheltering ourselves beneath the blood of the cross that marks the doorposts of your kingdom. Father, we thank you that as we identify with you, you identify with us. That you became our sins so that we might become your righteousness, your people. Father, we thank you that our joy is secure in you and that you are the same yesterday, today, and forever. We thank you that in you we have peace and life and hope. Oh, be in charge of us today. Our glorious God and Father and King, our brother, our friend, our identity, our everything. Father, we thank you. We pray these things in the name of Christ our Lord. Amen.